If you're new to worship here at Gamble Street, whether you're online or whether you're present with us today, you may not know we're at near the beginning of a series where we're listening to the words of Jesus. We've decided to go back and look at the things that Jesus tells us to do, because you know there are so many innovative and creative ways to approach, quote, doing church, being Christians today. And it compels us to go back and ask the question, what did Jesus tell us to do? I say innovative and creative. Not all of these things are new. Four years ago, Andy Stanley shocked many Christians, and especially evangelicals. You know, he's pastor of North Point Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, just north of Atlanta. And in Relevant Magazine, he wrote this. Participants in the New Covenant, and he describes to his church, that means Christians. Participants in the New Covenant are not required to obey any of the commandments found in the first part of their Bibles. Well, when he's talking about the first part of their Bibles, what's he talking about? The Old Testament. Participants in the New Covenant, that is the New Testament, are expected to obey the single command Jesus issued as part of his new covenant. One command. Not all those things in the Old Testament. And that command is this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, I don't disagree with this fact. That if we, if we love Jesus the way he loved us, and if we love one another the way that Jesus loved one another, loved us. I have no question if we did it perfectly that we would then have kept the commandments, but that's not his point. He is basically saying that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament's commandments are not relevant in their original context. They've all been reduced to one command. You know, what compelled him to do this was he watches a controversy about putting the Ten Commandments up in places like courtrooms and that sort of thing, and, and he makes this observation, why are we as Christians worried about erecting monuments to the Ten Commandments? And, and, and I understand why he asked that question. And then he says this, and I think it's a legitimate concern. He sees some today, what he says, rebranding aspects of the old covenant that God intended for Israel, and there's one question I have for him. I think it's intended for us as well. And taking those components and smuggling them into then the New Testament church surreptitiously. Well, folks, I will tell you forthright, I disagree with him 100%. Uh, and many others did too. I would also say this, there's nothing new under the sun. This is not a new idea. It's as old as the New Testament, or maybe it's as new as the Old Testament. You know, in the early church, the apostles had problems with people that said this very thing. And we believe that Paul probably was dealing with that kind of problem in Romans, the sixth chapter. Not only Paul, but Peter, probably in 2 Peter in the second chapter, and also John in 1 John in the second chapter. Well, you put the testimony of 
Peter, Paul, and John together, that's pretty powerful. They were dealing with this very kind of problem. The Gnostics in the second and third century, and maybe even the proto-Gnostics in the first century, were saying much the same thing. They rejected all of the Old Testament, and including that, the commandments. So you'll notice that in the bulletin, the title has a question mark after it. Keep the commandments? Are they relevant today? You know, the term antinomian, which describes this, anti against namas, the law, antinomian was a term that was coined by none other than Martin Luther in the 16th century when his friend, Johann Agricola, began to advocate this very doctrine. Agricola put such an emphasis on faith and faith alone that he said that it's all about faith. And when we put too much emphasis on keeping the law, keeping the commandments, then we are becoming legalistic. He said, in fact, the law, get this, the law is only for the unregenerate to follow. Those that are Christ's followers do not follow the law. And he made this statement, the Ten Commandments belong in the courthouse. They belong in the courtroom. You see, it's a secular thing. They don't belong in the pulpit. I'm here to tell you they belong in the pulpit. He said, to the gallows with Moses. You know, in the Reformation, hyper-Calvinists, those that were extreme in their Calvinism, some of them took it to that extreme. They said that the elect are immune from the law. In fact, they don't sin. The elect don't sin. Even if they disobey the Ten Commandments, we're under the covenant of grace. It's not sin. And they were misnamed. They were mislabeled as Anabaptists, but they baptize believers. Anabaptists, quote, Anabaptists, in 1534 in the city of Munster in Germany with the the theocracy that they tried to establish there also did the same thing, and it led them then to requiring compulsory, compulsory polygamy and the redistribution of wealth to establish their theocracy. In England in the 17th century, ranters during the period of the Civil War defied church authority, defied government authority, and defied Scripture. They said, we're led by the what? We're not led by some word written on the page. We're led by the inner spirit. Sin is imaginary. There should be no restraints on our behavior. We live in the new covenant. And in fact, the Quakers, the early Quakers, had a little problem with this. Led by the inner light, they defied all forms of authority. And in order to make their point, they engaged in rather bizarre behavior which would not be countenanced in the old covenant, such as walking through the streets prophesying without any clothes on and covered with cow dung. <laughs> those were the er some of the early Quakers. One of those was Mary Dyer. Mary Dyer, a Quaker woman in Boston, was tried because of her extreme views of antinomianism, and she was hung at the gallows after three male martyrs. Only four Quakers were put to death in the colony, and she was one of those. Antinomianism. Probably the best example of this in American history was Anne Hutchinson. Anne Hutchinson was a Puritan. She lived in Boston, and she said that she could be sure that she was elect. 
Most of the ministers in Boston Colony and Massachusetts Bay disagreed with that. They said that the elect that God chooses are certainly saved and they do not lose their election, but you cannot be sure that you're elect. You need to give evidence of that election by your works. And she said, no. She said, no, I'm convinced by the Holy Spirit that I'm elect, and in fact, I do not have to keep the law in order to show that I am sanctified. You see, this, the way this antinomianism can go, it can go one of two ways. We don't keep the law, and then it looses us from all kind of moral boundaries, and it leads to such problems of, as polygamy in a theocratic state. On the other hand, like Ann Hutchinson, it can be a kind of pious antinomianism. What she said is, I don't follow the law, I follow Christ. And if I follow Christ, I will live a pious and godly life, and I don't need to give evidence to you ministers of my sanctification. It's interesting, her granddaughter, Anne, and the reason I mention this is, Baptists have not always been untainted by this very kind of teaching. Andy Stanley notwithstanding, and some Baptists today that would say this. You see, her granddaughter, Anne Hutchinson's granddaughter, married Mary Dyer, the Quaker who was hanged, married Mary Dyer's son, Samuel. And they had a daughter, Anne Dyer, who married Carew Clark. Are you with me so far? Okay. Well, what's the significance of that? Carew Clark was the son of Joseph Clark, who was a Seventh-day Baptist preacher, and the brother of John Clark, who was the friend of Roger Williams, who got the charter for Rhode Island. All Baptists. So see, right on the fringe of this, we've got this antinomian kind of tinge. And Hutchinson's descendants include Franklin Delano Roosevelt, George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., and Stephen Douglas, all famous people, and another famous person in our midst this morning. Bud Smith is, through his paternal line, the 11th great-great-grandson of Ann Hutchinson and the 10th great-great-grandson of Mary Dyer. Congratulations, Bud. You know, I like genealogy. So, folks, it's a problem. It's a problem not just in the 17th and 18th century. It's a problem today. When preachers get up in pulpits and tell their people, we don't have, basically, we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. There's a challenging question, though, behind this. If we're, in fact, under God's covenant of grace, then does God still expect us to keep the Ten Commandments? You know what my answer is. The reason I say so is because Jesus gives us a very clear answer, and that is found in the story today. In Matthew, the 19th chapter, beginning in verse 16, and someone came to him, that is to Jesus, and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And then Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to this man, uh, the, the, uh, the ruler said to Jesus, which ones, which commandments do I keep? And Jesus then answered and said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Yes, children, that's still Jesus tells us to do that. 
and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, this passage is found also in Mark in the 10th chapter and in Luke in the 18th chapter. The context of it, I think, is pretty significant. What has just happened? In all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story is told after the disciples have told the children to stay away from Jesus. Children are trying to get to Jesus, and the disciples say, no, 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 and they, they turn them away. You see, he's got more important things to do. That, that's my interpretation of what they were saying. And you know what Jesus said? He said, no. He said, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For you see, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You see, I tell you the truth. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it at all. See, he's been talking about entering the kingdom, and he's been talking about eternal life, and he says, basically, let them come to me for eternal life. And then this young man, we know he's young now, from other accounts, comes running up to Jesus. We call him the rich young ruler. Well, why do we do that? Well, you see, all the synoptics describe him as wealthy, so there's the rich. Matthew we're going to read it in a moment, tells us that he was a young man, so rich, young. And Luke tells us in his account that he was some kind of ruler. We don't know what kind of ruler it was, but probably a a synagogue official. You see, in the background, one thing that we need to consider, this man's background, what he was thinking is, as we said last Sunday night in our Scarlet Thread series, Jews in that day believed that salvation was covenantal that it was part of being the covenant community of God. God elected Abraham and his descendants with the promise of the the covenant, which is a promise, that they were his chosen people. And by the time that this young man approaches Jesus, the accepted thought is it's a birthright promise. It's a birthright membership in the covenant. If you're born of a Jewish mother... And if you're male, you're circumcised. If not, then you're in a family where the head of the family has been circumcised. It's a birthright thing. We're children of Abraham. And you remember what John the Baptist said about that last Sunday night. Don't tell me that you think that you can be in the kingdom of God just because you're children of Abraham. What did he say? I tell you that God can cause these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So, John comes with a message that is different from that. And Jesus has a message that is different than that. You see, they believe, this young man believes then that he's in the covenant because he was born into the Jewish family, the Jewish covenant. He most certainly has been circumcised. And all he has to do then is to keep the terms of the covenant, to obey the Mosaic law. And if he's a ruler in the synagogue, if he's a synagogue official, almost certainly he probably was a Pharisee. We don't know that. It doesn't tell us that. But if he wasn't a Pharisee, he probably followed their policy then of ensuring the keeping of the Mosaic law by following the 613 rules of the rabbinical code. You see, it's all about doing one thing after another, doing these things and not doing those things. So what is the ruler, the rich young ruler trying to do here? You know, there were some that tried to trip Jesus up in the, in the temple. Later, we know that the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trip him up about the issue of the tax and whether or not the Jews should pay it. 
The Sadducees tried to trip him up with a, with a question about a woman who had been many times and whose wife would she be in heaven. The real question was, do you believe in eternal life? They were constantly coming to him and asking him for signs and trying to trip him up. I don't think that that's what this young man is doing. I think he's a sincere seeker because Mark tells us that he's eager. You see, he comes running up to Jesus, probably right after this event with the children, and he falls on his knees, you see, in a worshipful attitude. What might he be doing? His intent might be, well, you know, maybe he's looking for a shortcut, an alternative to the burdensome code of the rabbis, perhaps. Uh, maybe he's looking for some kind of deeper life, spiritual thing. And that's what a lot of these folks today are into when they say we don't have to follow the Ten Commandments. A more mystical, spiritual, relational approach beyond the mundane keeping of religious codes. But I don't think that that's the problem. I think that he's probably obsessive. I think he's just the opposite. I think that he's rather insecure about his salvation, and maybe 613 rules aren't enough. I think he's looking for number 614. You know, what's the thing that's really going to push me over? What's the thing that's really going to guarantee my salvation? And what does Jesus do? Jesus meets him where he is. He meets him right there with his understanding of what the law is. I don't think that Jesus in this passage is primarily focused on the moment or the method of salvation, although he does address it, but not directly. I think he's not so much giving the answer of how to be saved, also we can derive, and we will from what he says, that. I think he's more concerned about the process of kingdom living. Um, Jesus in this passage, some would say that he's advocating a kind of works theology because he says, keep the commandments. He's not doing that. He's not saying that works save. What he's doing is he's starting with a young man's superficial understanding of what the law is all about and his dependence on works. And then he's trying to give him a better understanding of the purpose of the law and a deeper understanding of what it means to be committed as a kingdom person to come into the kingdom. Jesus' intent, as we look at this passage, I think, is to dispel the idea that yet there's yet one more work to do, to get rid of that idea that you need to do more than what the law uh, calls for, some kind of special action. I think his intent is to reveal that the ultimate goal of salvation is this. What is the ultimate goal of salvation? Well, we see it when we read on in a moment, and we will. What's the ultimate goal of salvation? It's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks or so when he looks at his disciples and he says, come, do what? Follow me. That's the goal, you see. It's to follow Jesus, not to do works, including this fact that if you follow me, you will do as I do. And when you look at Jesus' life, if there was a person that ever kept all of the commandments, it was the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what he does in this passage, and we know this is one of his intentions, is then he challenges the young man with what our choir sang about this morning and what I prayed about. And that is, consider the cost of following him. The cost, even though salvation is, is something we can't buy. The cost is priceless. It's giving all in obedience to God. 
So let's read the rest of the story. What happens then after that in verse 20? Then the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? You see, there, what's that one more thing? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then here it is. Come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, you see, I tell you the truth. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) And then his disciples, you can just see them. They're just shaking their head. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And they said, "Then, then who can be saved? If this young man can't be saved, who can be saved? Look at all that he's done and tried to do for eternal life. And besides, he's wealthy, prosperous. This is an obvious sign that God has blessed him for his obedience. Who could be saved? And looking at them, then Jesus said to them, you see, with people, with human beings, with you, this is impossible. It's impossible to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. So it raises this critical question, what is eternal life? That's what this question is about. You know, the man says, what must I do to get eternal life? Eternal life in this passage is a state of being, which in this passage tells us is, it involves four things. One, it's entering life in verse number 17. Entering life, a life worth living. N- not a life of dead legalism, a life of no meaning and just keeping rules. Entering life. Entering into fellowship with God and having a relationship with Him and following me. Not the dead-in, secular, worldly view of salvation, which is keeping rules only. But it's a life with a future, an eternal future. It's entering life. Secondly, it's being made complete. Being made, and it literally means being made perfect. Verse number 21, that's what it means. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Therefore, be ye what? perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And you know what we've said about that before. At least you know what I think it means. I think it means that we become everything that God created us to be and intended us to be. We fit into that mold, if you will, that God created for us to be perfect. It's not about ticking off rules and keeping everything legalistically perfect because that is impossible. It's about being who God has made us to be. A third aspect of eternal life is that we will enter the kingdom of heaven in verse number 23. You see, he couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven because he had too much baggage. The way is what? The way is narrow and the gate is small. And folks, when you're loaded down with worldly baggage, you won't make it through the gate. And so he tells him to divest himself of that and to claim the eternal heavenly treasure that is already stored for him, and that is eternal life. And the fourth aspect of this eternal life is to be saved. Verse number 26. And folks, that's something that you and I can't do for ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't do it for yourself. It's impossible. Being saved is something that only God can do. Only God can rescue you, young man. You see, this is God's desire. What is God's will? God's will is that everyone would be saved. He wishes for everyone to be saved. Not everyone will. 
He wishes that every person would come to his son Jesus Christ and be made complete, be made perfect, be made acceptable in his sight and enter the kingdom of heaven and experience life eternally with him and serve him forever. That's eternal life. So how do we obtain eternal life? Not by working for it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Not by earning it. This young man has done everything. And not by buying our way into heaven. Jesus knew that the one thing that stood between this young man and his heavenly reward was his, were his riches. You see, it's impossible for us to perform perfectly. It is impossible for us to do yet one more thing that pushes us over the edge and gets eternal life. What had Jesus just said to the children? What did he said, say to their parents and the disciples? Let the children come to me. You see, this is what it means then to enter eternal life. It's a matter of simple trust. Not in ourselves, not in our things, not in our riches, not in our doing, not in our legalism, not in following rules, but simple trust in the Son of God. And to come to Him like a child. Come to me and follow me. So what are Jesus' instructions here about the law? Now we get to the real nitty-gritty. What's, what's this business about the old covenant and the new covenant and keeping the law? But Jesus makes it very clear. He says, obey God's commandments. He's explicit about this. Whether it's before the cross or after the cross, he says, obey the commandments, not as a means of salvation. You're not going to be saved by keeping the law, but you keep, a, you keep the law as a result of being a kingdom person, of being saved. You see, obedience, Jesus is saying, is a sign of being a faithful member of God's covenant. And our our obedience leads to a life-giving and life-affirming existence with Christ as we walk with Him. Obey the commandments, He says. He gives this other instruction, too. It's, It's a little indirect, but it's just as pointed. He says, demonstrate your obedience to others. That's what He means in verse number 19, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the most quoted verse from the Pentateuch in the New Covenant. It's quoted eight times from the Torah. And you know what it does? It sums up the second table of the law. It's Jesus' second great commandment in Mark, the 12th chapter, when when the lawyer comes to him in the temple and says, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, the second is likened to the first. And it is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that what Jesus says, and this sums up the second table of the law, all human relationships. And then he gives here five examples of that before he says, love your neighbor. What does this do? It demonstrates our obedience to God to others, to people who are watching. What else does Jesus say about the law? Why did Jesus not, he leaves one out. He leaves one out. There are six six commandments that he gives. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, so on and so forth. Honor your father and mother. And then he closes with love your neighbors yourself. What did he leave out? Which one? Think about it. Number 10. Do not what? Covet. But Jesus didn't leave it out. He doesn't mention it explicitly, but then he does what? He says, nephew, if if you want to enter life, if you want to enter the kingdom, then do what? Go sell everything you have, give to the poor. And it's gone. It's no longer yours. And then come follow me. What commandment is Jesus dealing with there? 
the real burden and the real barrier between that young man and Jesus, and it was his covetousness. So Jesus covers them all. Why did Jesus not mention the first table of the law? Why didn't he mention the, the first four that are related to God? Well, he did indirectly. He, he looks at him and he says, don't you know that only one is good? And when he does this, this is like a, a, an alarm signal. When Mariano read it earlier today, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It is the Shema. And then you notice that Mariano read to the end of that chapter, the section that describes what that means. It means then that if we accept him as one, we then keep all of his commandments. You see, it sums up the first great command in the first table of the law. Jesus has addressed it. I think another reason that Jesus didn't mention the first table of the law is Jesus already knows. God always knows what is in your heart. He knows whether you're devoted to him. What he wants you to do is to demonstrate that to others, to demonstrate your love for him by loving others, to demonstrate your commitment to the first table of the law, not to commit idolatry and to keep his name clean and to keep the Sabbath and to worship only him. All of those things, you see, we demonstrate by the way we treat others. These are observable acts that bear witness to our love for God. So why do we keep the Ten Commandments? Why am I saying this morning it is wrong for us to say we don't need to keep the Ten Commandments in them anymore? Well, first of all, because Jesus did so himself, didn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says what? I did not. Don't say. Don't you dare say that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to do what? To fulfill them. And he did. He fulfilled them by explaining them more fully. He fulfilled them by keeping them completely. And he fulfilled them by accomplishing the legal and the ceremonial requirements of the law for sacrifice. He kept it all. He lived a sinless life. Jesus himself says so in John the 8th chapter when he looks at the Jews that challenge him. Peter gives witness of this in 1 Peter 2. He lived a sinless life. He kept the commandments. A second reason is that Jesus told us to do the same. Matthew, the fifth chapter, whoever cancels, whoever annuls, whoever gets rid of the least of these commandments will be called least in the what? In the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He did so himself. He told us to do so. And he showed us how to do it. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, they have what they call the antitheses. There are five statements that Jesus uses to explain what the law really means. You have heard it said unto you, but I say to you. And then he deals basically with five of the commandments that are in the second table of the law. He deals with murder. Don't you know that anger in your heart against someone is just as bad as murder? He deals with adultery. He says, not only don't do it, don't even think it. <laughs> he deals with lying when he talks about bearing false oaths, and he takes it a step further, and he says, don't even pronounce oaths. He deals with stealing when he thinks about your rights that you have and people taking them from you, and he says, don't resist an evil person, and when somebody asks from you, give to them. And he deals with loving your neighbor. What does he say? Don't just love your neighbor. Don't hate your enemy. Love your enemy and pray for those that persecute you. So you see what he does is he explains this law in a fuller context, and he tells his disciples to keep it. 
You know, somebody who says that we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments today, then probably ought to look at the Sermon on the Mount and ask why is Jesus then telling us to fulfill them in an even fuller way. Another reason then to keep the commandments is to enter life. Verse number 17. Jesus was simply reiterating an Old Testament principle here. And he endorsed it as still current. And it is this, Leviticus 18.5. You shall keep my statutes. You shall keep my judgments by which man may live if he does them. You see, they bring life. They're there for our own sake. Moses said that. Joshua said that. Don't depart to the left or to the right from the words of God, the commandments of God, so that you might prosper and have success. They help us enter life and have a life-affirming relationship with God. Another reason is that the apostles taught it. They taught obedience to the commandments. Every commandment of the Ten Commandments is found in the New Testament where we are told explicitly to keep them except one. And what is it? Oh, we keep the Lord's day, but we are not required to keep the Sabbath, that is, the seventh day on the seventh day as the Jews did. Colossians, the second chapter, says, they, says this. Paul says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. You make the decision whether you do or not. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And we know what early Jewish Christians did. They kept the Sabbath for a while. But eventually the church then adopted the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, because it was Resurrection Day. And we honor that day as the Jews did the Sabbath. You see, the the apostles taught keeping the Ten Commandments. Paul's instruction, he said this, we reject the need for keeping the ceremonial law, the ritual law, and the law of sacrifices. Christ has made that sacrifice, but he urged them to keep the commandments. In 1 Corinthians 7 chapter, he says this, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. That's pretty hard to do. (laughs) Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. You see, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. You can't be any more explicit than that. And in Romans, the 13th chapter, he describes the second table of the law, which we keep, and he lists at least four of those that are in the second table of the law. And he says that loving your neighbor sums up all of these, and we're to keep them. John's instructions, he's just as explicit. He says, obedience to Christ's commandments and following his example are paramount. In 1 John 2, he says this, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner in which the Lord walked. You notice here that he says, keep the commandments of Christ. Plural, not singular. There's not just one law that, that Christ gave us. Love one another as I've loved you. No, it's commandments. It's plural. Some would argue, well, then it's the two commandments. It's the great commandment, love the Lord your God, and the second one is love your neighbors yourself. But Jesus himself said that those were simply a summation of all of the others which Jesus kept. 
So keeping the commandments of Christ, according to John, is to keep the Ten Commandments and to walk in the same manner in which He walked. And He kept them, so we must keep them. And a last reason, I think, for the keeping of the Ten Commandments is they're essential. <laughs> they're essential for discipleship, Christian discipleship. Every major faith, uh, Christian faith tradition says so. The Reformed Church in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Presbyterians of Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Lutherans in their larger Catechism, the Roman Catholic Catechism, Calvin's Institutes, all of them are built partly on an explanation and the teaching of the Ten Commandments. And Baptists, too. You won't find it in the Baptist Faith and Message stated explicitly this way. But in the Second London Confession of 1677, revised in 1689, it put it this way. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. They're essential not only for discipleship, they're essential for public order and discipline. In the Supreme Court building, in the courtroom where they sit to render their decisions, you walk in and there are marble walls with columns, 50-foot high ceiling, there's a frieze, and there are engraved on that frieze 18 lawgivers. From Hammurabi to Justinian to the 18th century legal expert William Blackstone. And in the center, directly above the Chief Justice's seat, is a rounded tablet with 10 Roman numerals on it. Folks, the Ten Commandments are foundational and primary source, not only of American law, but they have informed our understanding of what is right and what wrong in the Western legal tradition. I believe in the separation institutionally of the church and the state. You know that. I believe it's biblical and it's Baptist and it's Christian. But this does not mean the separation of religion from politics. It does not mean that we do not inform our political community with the commandments of God to bring about good order and discipline. So let me apply this. Two things. What is the role of God's law and salvation from this passage? Let me explain it this way. I, before the law, the Scripture tells us that Abraham was justified by what? Faith. Before he was circumcised, he was justified. He was saved by grace and the promise of God's covenant. Wow, that sounds like the gospel. Later, God gave the law to do this to teach righteousness and to convict of sin. It was needed. This didn't ch change the promise of grace. You know, some want to say, well, that was a covenant of works in the Old Testament, and this is a covenant of grace. No, that's a false dichotomy. You see, they were to live under grace in the Old Covenant as well. And justification by faith was still true. But before Christ, Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3, the Jews were in the custody of the law. You see, what they were doing is they were waiting for an advocate to come who would release us, release them from the custody of the law. They were awaiting the arrival of the object of their faith. They were still to have faith. They were still to be saved by grace, but they were waiting for the object of their faith, and that was the Messiah. And meanwhile, God used the law as a tutor to show them their need for Christ. But what has happened? By the time this young man comes and runs and, and, and then kneels before Jesus, they have misused the law. 
They've misused it as a covenant of works to save themselves. And Jesus, when he stands there before the Nazareth synagogue, and he inaugurates his ministry, explains what's happening. He quotes Isaiah 61. Look it up in Luke 4. He explains in Isaiah 64, I have come to do what? I have come to set the captives free. I am the one that has come to set them free, yes, from, from the oppression of sin and death and all of that, but I have also come to set the captives free from legalism, from the legalism of dead works that do not save. And then Jesus did what? He fulfilled the legal and the ceremonial requirements of the law for salvation by his sacrifice, by his shed blood. He shed his blood as a ransom for us. He paid that price and he kept that part of the law so that we do not have to do it because our blood would never save us. You see, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law and it empowered him then to invite us to come and follow him and he can make us perfect. He can make us complete. He can make us acceptable. He can wash us with his blood so that we're presentable to the Father. And so today, guess what? Just like Abraham, we're saved by grace and we're justified by faith because we follow him. And we do not need the law. We do not need the commandments. We do not need the old covenant any longer as a tutor for salvation, for our tutor is Jesus Christ. However, we do need the law for something else. You see, there's a role of God's law in kingdom obedience. We follow Christ as our example and our model of righteousness. He fulfilled the ceremonial law so that we don't have to do it in its ritual obligations. But he never, ever, for a moment, canceled the moral law and God's requirement for us to keep his commandments. You see, they're embedded in his kingdom ethic. They're embedded in the Sermon on the Mount. And we keep them, and we must keep them today because we follow Christ and we follow his example. And he commanded us to do so. So what is eternal life? Eternal life isn't finding that one more thing that we have to do to satisfy God. There's only one thing. As children, as children of God, we come to Jesus Christ and we follow him. Will you surrender your all for him now? Follow his will and obey. Crown him as sovereign before his throne bow. Give him your heart today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, as the advocate, the one who entered the jail room in which we were housed under the custody of the law, and he set us free from the requirement of performance to save ourselves, which is impossible. We thank you that you sent your son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, then to shed his blood so that it would redeem us out of sin and death and free us then to become your children. And for this, we give you thanks. And our prayer is this morning that if there's someone who's listening who has never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who is still captive to sin and death, that they would surrender their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, knowing this, that the cost of discipleship is high, to surrender all to him.
and then to commit to obey and to follow you by following his example as he followed those commandments. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is God's pleasure this morning with you as we respond to his invitation?